Pediatrician is a podcast of the Alabama chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics, designed to bring the latest news and updates in child health to pediatricians across Alabama. We'll be covering a range of topics from advocacy and practice management to mental health and injury prevention and everything in between. So whether you're a pediatrician in Birmingham or Mobile, in Pine Level or Slap Out, this podcast is for you. Podcast. I'm your host today, Dr. Kim Middleton, Area 1 representative of the Alabama chapter of the AAP. Today we're continuing our discussion about how obesity affects orthopedic conditions of childhood. We're excited to be joined again by Dr. Tyler McDonald, pediatric orthopedic and spine surgeon and assistant professor at the University of South Alabama. Thank you for joining us again. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be back with y'all. Absolutely. So our last podcast, we talked about the physiology that leads to orthopedic orthopedic complications in obese children. If you have not had a chance to listen to it, please go back and do so as it will provide a good background. Let's start with the knee, the most common site of musculoskeletal pain in obese children. Could you explain why that is and what we as pediatricians need to be aware of when we have a child come to clinic with knee pain? Yeah, sure. So the knee, um, there's a lot of stuff going on at the knee, right? There's, um, first of all, there's a lot of weight that goes to the knee during our normal gait cycle. Um, and there's, uh, the knee is actually a pretty complicated joint. It's more than just sort of like a hinge, uh, on a door frame, uh, when you, when you kind of break it down. So there's a lot more like degrees of motion that are, that are happening. Um, and so even in non-obese children, the knee is a common site for pain, present, uh, for a common site for, you know, when a child presents to a primary uh, care clinic for some sort of musculoskeletal pain. The knee, uh, the ankle, the back, those are kind of some really common things we see. But we see the incidence of knee pain in obese children uh, a lot higher than that in their normal weight controls. And... Um, you know, they also get more pain in the back and the ankle as well, but the knees tends to be a, a, a really common place. I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of weight that goes through the knee. And so when you have increased weight, you have that much more force going through the knee. And also, um, there's a lot more alignment issues around the knee, uh, that we see in children with obesity. Um, I think we'll talk about some of that, uh, today. But um, when you have a lot, when you have a huge like thigh girth, then sometimes the legs are pushed apart. And then now maybe you have a little bit of wider stance gait and that puts uh, new stresses on the knee that it's not necessarily designed for. And so, um, you know, not only the weight, but also like, you know, just the circumference of the thigh can push your legs out of alignment. So I think that's why we see a lot of knee problems in uh, obese children compared to uh, normal weight children. Okay. Is there anything that we as general pediatricians need to monitor for or, uh, I guess, exam findings that we need to make sure we do? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of what pediatricians will see is just kind of your run-of-the-mill knee pain. Um, uh, just sort of, um, you know, nothing going on uh, pathologically just kind of increased stress and maybe some muscle weakness and stuff like that. But it's really, really important for primary care providers on the front lines to not get lulled into a sense or a, a place of complacency 
um, around knee pain because one of the most um, devastating things that we can see in obese children, especially around like adolescence and, and um, during the growth spurt, is a skiffy or slipped capital femoral pemphysis. That's actually a hip problem. Um, and if left unnoticed and it gets becomes an unstable skiffy, that can actually wreak havoc on the hip and uh, pretend really a bad prognosis for like hip health long term. And but the knee actually is um, where a lot of these patients will complain of symptoms. That's where they will feel the pain and they may not have any hip pain at all. And so, especially in your children, the ones going through their growth spurts, um, it's really to hone in on the hip if they come in with with uh, with knee pain. So, how is it that um, skiffy ends up being frequently underdiagnosed? It's the reason is it, it not all kids with skiffy come in and say, "Hey, my hip hurts." Um, Many kids will come in and they'll complain of knee pain or even thigh pain. Uh, and so those are the kids that it's most important to sort of always have your antenna up and keep skiffy as like a diagnosis in the back of your mind. Anytime you have a kid with knee pain, especially an obese kid with knee pain, um, to like at least just think about, like have it in your mind. Uh, because if you don't, if you're not even thinking about it, then obviously you're more likely to, to, miss it and just diagnose it as, you know, a sprain or growing pains or, or, you know, something like that. Okay. What type of imaging do you recommend us getting? So, yeah, if you are thinking there could be a chance that this is a skiffy, um, then uh, at the minimum an AP pelvis. Uh, but if possible, I like to get an AP pelvis and a frog leg lateral pelvis. So that's basically where, you know, for an AP pelvis, obviously you're, you're getting an anterior posterior like image of the pelvis. Their knees are pointed forward. And then you do the same thing, but they kind of um, externally rotate their hips and kind of almost like a frog position uh, sitting. And that and you, the x-ray beam stays the same, but you, you're seeing the side view of their of their proximal femurs because they're moving their hips. And sometimes for really, really subtle skiffies, really mild or early slips, you may, you may miss it on the AP, and it's more um, sensitive to see it on the frog. So if possible, an AP and a frog lateral. Okay. And in terms of post-op care, what, I guess, how long does it take typically for children who get surgical repair from Skiffy uh, heal? And I guess what is the, the care regimen for that? It's highly dependent on what kind of skiffy they have. So um, skiffy comes in two flavors, basically stable and unstable. And that's a clinical staging. That's a clinical system. So stable means that they can put, they're able to like put weight on it, even with crutches. So they like walk into your clinic. Unstable skiffy are the worst kind. And that's where like, they can't even put weight on it, even with crutches. So those are two different areas on the spectrum for me when it comes to skiffy i treat them a little bit differently so um um i i do a little bit more for the unstable ones i will use two screws to fix it instead of uh one not everyone does that and you know we could have a debate on like the my the you know i don't think this is like the right 
stage for like surgical treatment or like, you know, the nitty gritty on that. But, and I'll also do uh, a hip capsule, a, a hip capsulotomy, or I'll make a cut in the hip capsule. And the idea is that if they have an unstable slip, a lot of times it's an acute thing that happened, like they fell and it was an idiot, right? And they're bleeding inside their hip capsule. And so I want to release that pressure so that it, there's not like a tamponade effect on the, the, the vascular supply because the biggest or the most feared complication after an unstable skiffy or even after a stable, but it's much more common with unstable is AVN or avascular necrosis. And that's where the blood supply gets, uh, kinked off or somehow the, the head part loses blood supply and that bone dies and it collapses. Um, and there's really not a great treatment once we start going down that pathway. There's certain temporizing things we can do, but a lot of the times the hip replacement is uh, in their future. So um, if they have a stable slip, I'm going to let them start walking on it much sooner than if they have an unstable slip. Um, I keep kids um, non-weight bearing for the unstable slips for much longer um, because they could potentially still break through those screws i've had a kid break through screws before so it's you know everything's a coat hanger if you um if you bend it enough times right so even these like big beefy screws can break if there's not a good bone um stability to back it up so the unstable slips i'm a lot more conservative on than the kids with stable slips so when you're concerned with obesity and knee pain get frog leg x-ray and AP of the hips look for skiffy. Yes. Yes, that is right. I think have a very low threshold to order that study uh, because you could, if, if it's positive and they do have skiffy, you could, you could be like saving that kid's hip because the risk is if, if, if you kind of string them along for months and months with a stable skiffy that, you know, they, and they're like, they're still walking, they're still playing sports, they just got a little bit of knee pain. That could be a stable skiffy that's just waiting to displace and become an unstable skiffy. So the longer you wait before they find their way to someone like me to, to treat that surgically, then the more risk there is that uh, not so bad of a problem could become a terrible problem for their hip. Because a stable skiffy, kids generally do pretty well from, but unstable skiffies carry a much higher complication risk with them. The AVN risk is much higher, um, and um, it's just kind of uh, risk more risky all around. Um, so I much prefer treating a stable skiffy than an unstable skiffy, um, and a lot. And it's like time is money on something like that. So very low threshold to work up a kid for skiffy to get an X-ray if you even have the inkling that you know this could be skiffy. Okay. So. Uh... John had met, John, my co-host had mentioned that, um, you know, when you gave your talk at the spring meeting, he had not been very familiar with Blount's disease, but since this, since your talk, he's actually taking care of a patient with severe Blount's. Could you tell us more about this condition? Yeah. So, um, Blount's disease is, um, is a condition of the growth plate on the tibia, so the proximal tibia growth plate, so right, like right, right below the knee joint, and what happens is, is the the medial side of that growth plate becomes um, 
either tethered or it's just sick and doesn't grow as fast as the lateral side. And you start to get progressive bowing of your leg because of that. Okay. Um, it is pretty much a um, diagnosis related to obesity. Uh, the vast majority of kids with Down's disease are obese. It's strongly, strongly associated with obesity. And there's two types. There's a there's an infantile type and an adolescent type. Um, and there is some role for non-operative treatment in infantile types with like bracing and stuff, but it's not super effective. But um, the vast majority require surgical treatment um, because left untreated, it can progress, and you have you know basically a severe like like bow-legged deformity, severe uh, varus at the knee we call genuvarum. Um, that um, can give rise to, you know, knee arthritis, basically, if left untreated. When you have these mechanical malalignments, you know, you're loading the knee uh, in a non-natural way, and it can wear down the knee joint, basically, for lack of a um, more elegant description, uh, over time. Um, and so that's what Blount's disease is, and it comes in different, you know, severities right you know i've had kids with very mild blount disease to kids that can't even walk anymore because of it so you know we see a, a spectrum of it um but by and large the treatment is surgical so it's something that if you notice it in your clinic then you want to refer it to a an orthopedist to manage blount disease is typically unilateral is that correct it's more likely to be unilateral if it's so there's we talk about there's the adolescent and idiopathic types and the adolescent types are more likely to be unilateral, um, and they are more likely to be um, seen in boys. Okay, um, you can still have bilateral adolescent Blount's disease, um, but bilateral is more common in in the infantile Blount's disease, and the the male to female incidence is equal uh, for that. So it it depends on the type okay what about scoliosis in obese children how does it differ in obese children versus you know a healthy weight child yeah so um unlike the conditions that we've talked about so far skiffy and blounts um scoliosis is not uh, a condition of obesity per se uh, skiffy and blounts are both really tied incidence wise to obesity Scoliosis is not. So a, a normal weight kid and an obese kid are both just as likely to have scoliosis. But with with obesity, there's a lot of um, negative impacts on scoliosis itself and, and the treatment and how these kids kind of come through the, the, the system and, and present to us to be treated. So the first is they're, it's, it's harder to notice the curves. And so usually the, the referral is delayed. So by the time they make it to us, they've got bigger curves. And um, a lot of the times these kids are, you know, it's like the parents or grandparents or or the pediatrician during a well-child check that is first noticing this. So for well-child checks, you know, you have your, uh, the kid kind of bend over, touch their toes, you're looking at the back and you're looking for like a, a curve in their spine or, or a rotation asymmetry. And, and that's called the Adams forward bending test. That is a lot less sensitive in an obese child that has a lot larger soft tissue envelope kind of masking that curve. So by the time you can see it in an obese child, the curve is a lot more than it is 
in a, a healthy weight counterpart. So they're already kind of behind the curve um, when they present to us because they may their their curve may be more advanced um, than if they weren't obese, and that has implications for treatment, right? Uh, we we do a lot of non-operative treatment with bracing if they're still growing and their curve is between certain degrees. But if they're already beyond that, then a, a brace is not an option for them. And then when they are braced, the brace isn't as effective because the brace has to like basically like squeeze the spine. It imparts a force on their spine. And it's harder to do that when there's a large soft tissue envelope. It kind of like distributes the forces and you can't, it's, it's hard to design a, a good brace. So that large soft tissue envelope kind of um, makes bracing less effective. And then when children do need surgery, there's a lot more um, surgical uh, risk and complications that go along with being obese. There's a higher incidence of superficial um, uh, skin infections. Um, we actually did a study a couple years ago, a multi-center study, and uh, looked at that and saw that uh, children's superficial um, uh, skin infections were higher, wound complications were higher. Um, and so it definitely uh, adds a little bit more layer of risk when you're taking a kid back to the operating room who's obese versus normal weight to have their uh, uh, scoliosis treated surgically. Okay. So scoliosis is can occur with any child, but it's a lot harder to detect and therefore can cause further complications down the road with obesity. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. Well, good to know. I remember you mentioning at the spring meeting that with obese patients who come in with fractures, you go ahead and place them on vitamin D supplements, which makes sense since they're at higher risk of vitamin D deficiency. What are some other obesity-related issues? You had mentioned uh, increase of wound complications, but what are some other things that people may not think about? Well, with fracture care specifically, um, uh, obese children are more likely to uh, present with worse breaks, basically, which already put them at a higher risk of, you know, things going wrong or not healing correctly or needing more advanced care. Uh, and they're more likely to fail casting. So uh, just like scoliosis bracing isn't as effective in obese children, the thicker soft tissue envelope that, um, makes it where the cast can't impart its forces as precisely on the bone. So obese children are more likely to have their fractures displaced even when they're in a cast. When that happens, you know, they're at a higher risk of like, of, of you know, the care becoming escalated to needing a surgery. Um, so they're definitely more at risk for that. Um, and uh, you mentioned the vitamin D. I, so yeah, I definitely recommend vitamin D supplementation. And I kind of spend a little bit of time like gauging like what their diet's like and that kind of thing because um, vitamin D deficiency, like we talked about last time, I think, is super prevalent in obese kids. And, um, you know, they, you need kind of those building blocks to heal bone. So um I will, if I'm, if I'm worried about it and they're slow to heal, I'll actually order a vitamin D on some of those kids and, um, you know, get a blood draw and actually look. And if it's low, then I'll actually give them, you know, prescription strength vitamin D. But most of the time I'm just, you know, recommending an over to the counter dose just for a routine a fracture care. Perfect. I also, um, 
remember us talking about how with obese children, you know, their pain management is very different because a lot of times with the weight dosing, it's not accurate since it's not near their ideal weight to you. So I can imagine that can complicate issues. Mm -hmm. In your talk, you said that there's evidence that motivated children can lower their BMI. What are some ways we as pediatricians can motivate our patients? Yeah, so... You know, there's a lot of research on this and, you know, this isn't, you know, I'm, I'm not in that field or, or that space. Um, but from my reading, um, the, the, it, it, it really seems that the, the programs that make, that have the most effect or the most lasting effect are the ones that kind of attack obesity from multiple, uh, facets. So these, these multimodal, uh, treatment plans. So, um, programs that have exercise um, recommendations and regimen built into them. So the, the physical activity counterpart, um, definitely uh, the diet as well, right? Those are the two things that are obvious. But a lot of these kids, you know, also need um, intensive like behavioral therapy as well because sometimes or many times these uh, eating habits are, are, you know, maladaptive behavioral issues that um, – you know, so, so not only like say, Hey, this is good food. This is bad food. This is the exercise you should be, you should be doing for this many times a week for this many hours in a day, but also like the behavioral therapy and the, the, the counseling and stuff as well. Um, we, there's also some evidence that, um, obese kids that are playing organized sports are more likely to be, uh, successful with their weight loss programs. Um, uh, so you know, um, I take that as, you know, saying like, you know, encourage your kids to join the sports team and get out there because it, you know, helps them be active anyway. So it's kind of like a two for one. Um, uh, but the most important predictor in success tends to be the age at which the intervention is performed. So the younger, the better, right? So the younger kids are more successful than the older kids and like sticking to a plan whenever these interventions are, are performed. Um, but I wouldn't let that discourage anyone from, you know, putting someone through a plan. You know, it's never too young, right. To, to, you know, beef up your, your weight loss, uh, efforts for, for your patients. But if you can get them at kids and younger, then we, we know that that's better. Okay. Well, that's good to know. If a kid had a complicated fracture and, um, do you put them on an anticoagulant based on you know, their obesity or is it more their age that increases their risk of a DVT? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know if I have the full answer to that story. So um, DVTs are, are compared to the adult population, DVTs in kids is, is much more rare, but it, it can happen. Um, and uh, I think obesity definitely is a risk factor for that. Um, I, I don't just because I have a obese child with a fracture that that's not indication enough for me, at least personally to, uh, recommend, um, some sort of venous thromboembolism prophylaxis. Um, now I encourage, um, you know, part pro, you know, mobility is, is good prophylaxis too. So I encourage kids if they can to be mobile, right? If they have an ankle fracture, I encourage, you know, crutches or a walker over a wheelchair, that kind of thing. 
Um, I think it's really the kids that are uh, multiply injured, you know, systemic trauma, have a lot of things going on that are bed bound in the hospital, ICU, that kind of thing. Those are the kids that are, I think, at a more real risk of having a DVT. And those I will, you know, on a case by case basis, will be more apt to, you know, do some sort of um, uh, VTE prophylaxis, whether or not it's um, some sort of a medication or, you know, um, you know, something as easy as just doing the, the, you know, the calf squeezers or something like that. Okay. Yeah. And I can imagine too, you, you know, you're talking about being bed bound. Um, sometimes it's hard for those children to have tra transfer from like the bed to the couch or, you know, the bathroom mm -hmm. with the aid of say a grandmother, if they are obese, because they wouldn't be able to move very well or have a fall risk on yes. top of everything else. Yeah. And I would say, um, for the same injury, um, I tend to have more obese kids that are in wheelchairs at, and it's, it's mainly for a lower extremity fracture, right? Where they would otherwise need some sort of assistance to stay off of it, crutches or walker or wheelchair or something like that. But these obese kids, not only are they heavier, so they, so if you ask the obese kid to be non-weight bearing to one of their legs and be on crutches, not only are they heavier, so not only do they have more weight that they have to support with crutches through their arm muscles, basically, but they're already less strong because they're, you know, tend to be more sedentary um, and that kind of thing. So it's like a double whammy. So um, they are more likely to fail crutches or walkers and need a wheelchair, whereas for the same injury in a healthy weight counterpart, they're up and around the next day on crutches, right? And so those kids are going to have two very divergent um, recovery protocol, recovery like, you know, experiences because, um, you know, if I keep a kid off of their leg for six weeks, that's six weeks in a wheelchair. They're losing muscle mass in the other leg, right? They're not as active. They're just becoming more and more sedentary. So it's kind of a negative feedback loop. Whereas the other kid, even though he's not walking on his leg, he's up and around, he's using his muscles. He's, you know, his heart rate's getting up. He's, you know, expanding his lungs. He's not becoming as deconditioned as the other child. So um, uh, obesity really kind of puts a, a cog in the machine or puts a wrench in the, in the machine, if you will, on that sort of whole recovery cycle. And then it takes longer to get them back to baseline. Okay. Good to know. We like to end each podcast episode with a take-home point. What is the one thing that you would like to make sure everyone listening to this podcast understands? I think the biggest take-home that we from this would be uh, relating to the Skiffy. The biggest takeaway would be if you have a kid, an obese child with knee pain in your clinic who is, you know, around that adolescent age, is to have Skiffy on your differential. Um, that that you can make the biggest difference in a child's life with their hip health, basically. So I think that that has the, the potential to have the biggest impact. Okay, well, thank you so much. Um, thanks again for joining us and for talking more about orthopedic complications with obesity. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah, and thank you to everyone joining us as well. And we'll see you next time. 